I'm Kate Daniels. On this Earth Day weekend, we have photographer David Lischwager with us. David's passion is for the ocean and its creatures, and he shot more than a dozen assignments for National Geographic, and some of that work can be seen in an amazing new book, Octopus, Seahorse, Jellyfish. David Lichwager, good morning. Thank you so greatly for taking time with us this morning. Good morning to you. And more greatly, of greater thanks, is the fact that you have poured so much of your life into the creation of this magnificent book uh, that National Geographic, who is just so famous for publishing beautiful books, uh, this one on octopus, seahorse, jellyfish. And the photographs are just incredible. I would think that you were somehow undersea and diving for these, but that wasn't really the case. You did travel the world for this, though, didn't you? Yeah, it's about a dozen, 20-something locations in a dozen different countries or states, from Australia to um, Spain, California, Florida, so quite a lot of traveling, and just to go, you know, see where these creatures are or where they're particularly elegant specimens in aquariums and things like that. So um, I'm always looking for the ideal specimen of a lovely creature. Well, you certainly took great pains or poured a lot of yourself into finding incredible specimens. The photography, the photographs that we see in this book are just awesome. And added to that, you also worked alongside or had science writers contribute by writing about the choices of photographs that have been included in this book. Um, Yeah, the essays are derivative of three uh, magazine pieces for National Geographic. So over the last 10 years, I've done three features, one each about octopus, seahorse, and jellyfish. And in the inevitable or very lucky situation that the magazine has a reputation and therefore the resources to send me out into the world. And invariably, there are more pictures than will fit in the magazine. And then I was also able to add pictures of each of those kinds of creatures that came from other projects as well. So it represents, the book represents work from eight different projects. And then and we were able to compile the essays in the book as well. So it's a gathering of a lot of material. And you, I think, have kind of given us a, a reason why. I think I read it started in 2008, running to 2020. So a span of 12 years. I think you just let us in, in made us aware of how that could be that it took that long. Yeah. <laughs> I just thumbed back on the sort of tally that I made when I wrote this little little introduction to sort of give people a sense of the scope of it. I photographed something like 500 specimens, and the the edit, the final edit in the book, which is about 189 pictures, something like that, is called from 135,000 exposures. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a condensation of a fair amount of large swath of time and traveling. And it's hard to get my brain around 
the, those numbers, having 135,000 coming down to 189. I don't even know how you can begin to do that. Well, fortunately, I have a lot of help. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I have editors that help me a lot. And then I have my uh, wife, Susie Rashkiss, which is basically my best editor. So, yes, I have a lot of help. So let's step back to the origins of this, of deciding that you wanted to be photographing these creatures. And thank goodness you did. I mean, the, again, these the photographs in octopus, seahorse, jellyfish are just so phenomenal. But how did this draw you? What was it about them? Um, I'd, because of other projects... Um, I guess it would have been an early 2000 or so. I photographed an octopus in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands as part of a much larger project that was about all sorts of other things. It's basically a biological survey of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And so I, it was an intriguing creature. And then I photographed a seahorse for the California Academy of Sciences for an exhibit. Uh, and then I photographed some jellyfish as part of a, a project that was about eyes. Turns out some jellyfish actually do have eyes. So I, you know, I would learn these little bits about these very intriguing creatures. And then, because I want to take pictures that the world has a use for, and I'm fortunate enough to work for National Geographic from time to time, and they like their photographers to propose projects that they have some drive, um, connection to, that, that they you know that they really want to do. So I wrote a proposal for each of these things to, to National Geographic, and they've accepted them over the years. It's not just all at once. So. It starts with a minor affection and then turns into, uh, you know, wanting to write a love letter to each one of these groups of creatures. So I guess I, I have a lot of affection for even the squishy <laughs> cold water jellyfish. That is really so beautiful. And it's oh, just so inspiring that this passion, your passion, uh, is something that, that did just evolve. You didn't necessarily set out to it or you weren't born with it, but you, you found this and it kept growing. And and thank goodness that the world has National Geographic who will fund this, sees the value and will fund making it come to life in this way so that the rest of us can learn and see. Yeah, I'm certainly... I'm really happy that I'm able to share because I wouldn't certainly would not be able to do it on my own. So when you were first photographing the octopus in the northern Hawaiian islands, this was, though, right in nature. Were you actually doing the dives for this or were they in aquariums at that time? On that trip, I was, that was a project that um, became a book called Archipelago. And I was, uh, it was a collaboration between myself and another photographer named Susan Middleton. And it was uh, 
sort of an exploration of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, which are some of the most remote. It's it's sort of the mo- most remote place on Earth. If you if you look at a map, you know, you find a series of islands that are the farthest from any continent. That would be the, the Hawaiian Islands. And so we'd learned about this place while working in the main Hawaiian Islands on, on a project about endangered species. Um, and then wanting to show you know, this this little-known place that was in great need of conservation. Um, and the northwestern Hawaiian Islands have since become the largest protected area in the United States. So that octopus was collected by a scientist um, and then brought back to the ship, because we were working off a ship, and brought into the lab, and then uh, we photographed it. And then it was released. So we borrowed it for a short period of time, and um, yeah, it was wonderful. That is so amazing to do it in such a way to capture the creature, which probably, because it has this brain, and I think we're learning as to how intelligent it is, must have been a frightening experience, but then probably the releasing of it was then such an exhilaration. Yeah, I I don't know. I wonder what the creatures I photograph, what their experience is. I, I don't really have any idea. I certainly don't want it to be, you know, an uh, aggressive, exploitive thing. But on a certain level, maybe it can't be anything other mm. um, because I can't ask permission. Yes. And or receive permission or something like that. I don't know. I don't want to be too touchy feely about it or or come off as cold or exploitive either. But I am quite sensitive, and I think that you know, octopus. They don't. It's not that their brain is big because it's actually quite small. It's that they have a neural network that's radically different from most of the rest of, of, you know, invertebrates. And it, there are things that they can do that are truly extraordinary. And then when you talk to a scientist, you know, it's that they're made that way. You know, if they, if they, as they touch something, they can smell it. As they touch something, they know what color it is. If they touch it with their tentacles, then they can make the skin on the, the, if they touch it with their sucker, they can make the skin on their tentacle directly above that sucker that same color. I mean, it's like it's they're they're just this bundle of neural network and sensitivity to the to the to their environment, and they also have incredible eyes. Um, but it's not their eyes that are directing their skin to change color. It's, you know, it's, 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 the, the signal doesn't have to go from their tentacle up to their brain, back down to their tentacle to change color. It's like it happens out in, the, in that extended neural network. So that's kind of amazing. Yes. And also, an octopus's eyes are, were, they were evolved on a different part of the tree of life, a different branch than our eyes were developed. So their 
the blood supply to their retina is behind the photosensitive tissue. Our eyes are designed with the blood supply. It's a sort of lattice that is in front of the photosensitive material. So our brains, there's a certain amount of processing that has to go on in our brains to, imp to bring our vision up to, up to snuff because our eyes are actually not really very well designed in a certain sense because you've got all these blood vessels in the way. Uh, you know, would like be putting some gauze in front of the film if you're mm -hmm. trying to take a picture. Whereas octopus's eyes are maybe in some ways a superior design. I think that's extraordinary um, and intriguing. And it doesn't say that, you know, that that was, I don't know, it brings up these things about, you know, how evolution works. You know, it's not, it's not that it's perfect, it's that it's good enough. Mm. Um, and if you do good enough for long enough, you end up with pretty great. So <clears throat> it's a uh, fun thing to learn about. Yeah, and that was one thing that did stand out with the scientist who, who wrote about this was saying that she saw the eyes and it was like a real connection, not just a passive kind of thing. There, there seemed to be a real direct recognition. Yeah, um, the same thing happens with the seahorses. You know, they're... Vi Octopus and seahorse are both highly visual creatures. And I liked the idea of trying to make a, a portrait of a creature. And if it's a creature with big eyes, the idea that it's trying to achieve something that could, so that people would, would identify with the creature and get something out of it, um, whether it's the idea of creating some sort of mutual regard or the idea of it. I don't know if that's possible with a, with a seahorse or, or an octopus. It certainly is with, you know, lots of animals that we come in, in daily contact with. You know, certainly once uh, you meet a dog on the street and it, it stops and recognizes and some more than others. But, you know, there certainly is mutual regard beyond, you know, human to human. And the seahorse, it's this incredible creature they're just well the ones that i've seen in an aquarium are tiny and they're so well they're almost like the jellyfish so that they feel kind of transparent and ephemeral in a way that it's amazing that they are this creature that has survived also for millennia yeah and they're they live in they can't swim very well but then that's not their niche the way they make a living is to is to hide, basically they're masters of camouflage, down in the algae and things like that, in sh relatively shallow water. But they're distributed throughout the world in, in tropical and temperate water. And they don't have a big mouth. They don't have a stomach. They have to basically feed off of plankton-sized material constantly. The males are responsible for the maternity <laughs> section of reproduction. So they receive eggs from the female. They uh, carry them inside a pouch on their stomach, and then they give live birth after a period of time. So they have the burden of pregnancy, and that's quite rare. There are some other fish that do it, so it's not exclusive to seahorses, but it's 
wow, what an interesting way to to come up with a different solution to the same problem. It's just how to carry forward in the world. Yes, and there's this one species, or one among a few, but why in this vast ocean is this creature designed in that way? It's, it is totally amazing. Yeah, it's a, a masterful... You'd think after all these years I would just have these pat answers for things, but I don't have, uh, I don't have that yet. The diversity of life is just mm. constantly... If you keep looking, there's absolutely no end to it. So it's a, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be able to just keep looking. Which is then what keeps you going and keep searching so that you can keep finding this and sharing it, learning yourself and sharing it with the world. Hope so. Yeah. yeah. One other thing in the section with seahorses, and I, I note this with the sea dragon because some years ago, the Seattle Aquarium had some specimens of the sea dragons in tanks here. And I think most of us probably flocked there to see them. And these were so incredible. And they are part of the seahorse family, right? Well, seahorses are pipefish. So pipefish is the larger group, and that's called the Cygnathid. So in that, and Cygnathid has like five different groups. The larger group, which is the, the big, that we normally recognize as pipefish. And then there's the seahorses. And I think there's just short of 50 species of seahorses. And then there's the sea dragons, of which there are only three species. And so... Sea dragons and seahorses are both subsets of pipefish. Okay. But sea dragons are not seahorses, I guess is what I'm saying. Ah, yes. Um, but they're in the book because I wanted to, to have this look, couple of pages that shows you what a pipefish is and what a sea dragon is, you know, that they're mm. closest relatives. Yeah. Um, and so, and plus, who can resist a sea dragon? <laughs> exactly. That's why, you know, they were here and we flocked to see them because they are so incredible, so unique. And as you were saying, David, that there's just under 50 species of seahorses. We didn't mention that about octopi, but I had seen that in the book that there are 300 species. Um, that sounds about right. But then octopus are encephalopods which means they're also related to squid, of which there are many, many species as well. So the taxonomists, those parsings are, I mean, it's interesting the way one tries to organize lineages and all of that stuff. Sometimes it seems, but it's not fixed either. You know, as they learn more, there's sometimes more parsing than they do, and then there's sometimes some lumping that they do. Mm. So um, the numbers of exactly how many species of octopus there are sometimes you get more than one answer. <laughs> so therefore, when we look at jellyfish, which is the other creature that you have shared here with us in this magnificent book, Octopus, Seahorse, Jellyfish, says there's thousands of species. Oh, there are thousands. And the thing is, that's the one of them that they're going to be constantly be finding more of. Because there's all these fantastic creatures in the deep sea that we, have, that we haven't seen yet. Um, or maybe we've seen them, but nobody's had the time to actually figure out what they are and to figure out where they fit in the taxonomy, so to speak. Um, I think, 
you know, I read someplace recently, and this like it says ninety percent of the creatures in the deep sea have yet to be described, and you know that seemed kind of a too like seemed too high to me, and and I've had a lot of experience accompanying scientists who find new species regularly, so I called up a friend of mine who's a deep sea biologist, and she said, eh, that sounds about right, actually. Oh. Um, so, you know, that the fact that we're just scratching the surface of the deep sea is kind of, that's it's actually a wonderful thing to know that there's, the world's not used up. There's still lots of things to find and learn about. And on that note, I hope that they are protected enough that they're in the deep sea that what we are doing to our oceans is not going to make its way to uh, impacting their life. I, unfortunately, wouldn't be so optimistic because there's, I mean, I mean, that's a wilderness that you would think would be uh, untouchable by us. But I think with ocean acidification and with temperature change and Mm -hmm. pollution, I think that, you know, we should not think that everything is going to be fine just because it's far away. Yes. And what we think is immediately inaccessible. Um, So I don't have that optimistic of a view, but I am hopeful that, you know, an appreciation for, and also the deep sea, I mean, they're just learning about how much it has to do with the carbon cycle and how much it has to do with the with supporting the, the food chain, you know, at the surface that we, we depend upon, um, that it's completely connected to the rest of the world. So receive immense benefit from the deep sea, even if we don't know it. And I feel that conversations like this, but based then on books like this, octopus, seahorse, jellyfish, they provide us invaluable education and insight to hopefully inspire and be part of that optimism that, you know, the all of us, and particularly teaching our kids about this, they will embrace it and, and knowing so much more than was available, you know, several decades ago. Right. I mean, we hope. We and hope. I'll just keep going to to try to continue to participate. So this has been so fascinating to really get more of your experience and insight into what it's taken to create this magnificent book from National Geographic, which is now you know, readily available. And, and thinking about the education of our youth, not just in classrooms, but this is a great gift book. Uh, Graduations are coming up for one thing. Uh, You know, thinking of us here living on the coast, for anyone who could potentially have an interest in marine biology, it's, uh, I think, a a really invaluable resource. Would you agree with that, David? Yeah, I hope so. I also think um, anybody who's interested in uh, design or, um, I mean, there's there's a long history of nature inspiring all sorts of uh, design and engineering and things like, you know, there's, um, I mean, I think some of the way that these, these octopus, certainly the jellyfish, there's a, there's a picture of a flower hat jellyfish in the book. Right. That would be a great dress. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, I think there's some costume uh, possibilities that uh, that would be really lovely to see. So that brings us to a point, which I was aware of, that you were working with a famous fashion designer. So this is where kind of it all weaves together as to how you view nature and how you approach your work. Well, I worked for a, a famous fashion photographer. Ah. How, how I was trained okay. um, as an apprentice. Um, his name was Richard Avedon. And I learned from him lots of things, one of which is, you know, just how to really look at something. Um, because when you're a photographer, portrait photographer, fashion photographer, you have this license that most people don't have, which is to actually just stare at someone. Mm-hmm. And it's really an interesting permission to be given. Because if, you know, if someone's willing to sit for their portrait, they say, I want you to really look at me and see what, what's in front of you. And that, I really like doing that with creatures. And the fact is that the, the camera and the lights, basically, they, they can freeze time. You know, I get these little highly accurate one five thousandth of a second slice of as my friend Simone likes to call it, the river of time. Mm. You, and then you, then you get to really look at it. And the camera that I use now is, you know, it's 50 megapixels. It's, it's fantastic, the resolution. And so you get to see these little tiny details that are unavailable to, unavailable to our eyes in the normal flow of time. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really love to do. And that is so beautiful. That too, I I think, gives us an opportunity to consider for people looking at what is my career to be? What you've just described is, is just such a, a wonderful kind of evolution of um, how your career has gone, going back to doing what you really are passionate about and love doing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I thank you. This has just been so wonderful uh, to have this time to have you give us your own experience of creating uh, what has gone into this book, The Octopus Seahorse Jellyfish, available from National Geographic and available at your local uh, bookstores, but from National Geographic. But that we have this opportunity, which you just described about seeing such infinite detail that otherwise we would not capture, but it's right here on these pages and in brilliant colors. So, David, thank you so greatly. It's just been a a marvelous experience to have this journey with you. Great. I appreciate you. Thank you. This is a Sunday morning shout out. The March of Dimes does such incredible work in our community and across the country. Premature births, that is, birth before 37 weeks of pregnancy, and its complications are the number one cause of death of babies in the United States. Babies who survive premature birth often have long-term health problems, including cerebral palsy, intellectual disabilities, chronic lung disease, blindness, and hearing loss. In the United States, about 380,000 babies are born prematurely each year. 
The preterm birth rate is 9.8% in the U.S. This means that one in 10 babies is born too soon. The U.S. preterm birth rate is among the worst of high-resource nations. The March of Dimes provides so many critical services in our communities. Research and discovery, care innovation and community engagement, advocacy, education, family-centered newborn intensive care units, the NICUs. We can support the work of the March of Dimes by participating in the March for Babies. The March this year happens on Saturday, May the 14th at Woodland Park Zoo. It's a great opportunity to come together to hear from families who have been touched by premature births. And we will hear on Mother's Day from a mother who gave birth to twins, one of whom survived and one did not, will be invited to participate in the Walk for Babies on May the 14th. Please visit marchforbabies.org forward slash events info and register for the walk. And if you are not able to walk, please consider a donation to support this very critical work.